If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Matthew chapter 1. We are on page 1 of the New Testament. Um, this, this Advent series is really just looking at how each account of Jesus' life starts off. Because, you know, we, we like to focus on the barn and the, the moonlight and all those things, and that's all good, but that, that isn't necessarily how the gospel writers, right, the inspired word of God, begin the story of Jesus. And, and how you start a story tells you a lot about what's going to be in it, right? Like, um, I know someone in here can name this. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Who is it? Anna Karenna, thank you, right? And it gives you an idea. Uh, that's, that's who I said was going to get it. That's who I, I was like, Sam has this before I'm done with the first phrase, right? And that tells you a lot about what's, what's going to happen in the story. And so we are going to look at, uh, at the first 17 verses, that's what we're going to start with, of, of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, interestingly, fun fact, the, this, how it starts in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, you literally could translate that the book of Genesis. It's the same phrase. And so it gives you, gives you an idea. But let's, uh, let's, let's read together. You don't have to read out loud, just along with me. Text will be on the screen if you need it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab. <laughs> and Amin I practice this too. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Solomon. And Solomon, the father of Boaz, in case you were wondering if he was going to... Yeah, it keeps going like this. By Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. I'm just getting going. And Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Not done. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all, thank you very much. <laughs> and I feel like that explains itself, and we could just end the sermon now. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would see the message of your word today. Speak to us of the message of Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll get back to that. Um, on my first uh, tour, I used to play in a band. Our first tour, I was like 19 years old. And uh, it was the end of our tour, and we were playing a festival up in Oregon. And, and there happened to be like some hip-hop groups. I was always a 
a fan of hip-hop music, still am, but I wasn't like into the culture. I didn't like wear a backpack or anything like that. And, and I was hanging out with these groups, this group of guys, a few hip-hop groups. They all wore backpacks. They were that kind of, of, uh, of hip-hoppers. And, uh, and I, was, I was very curious, right, because there, there's a whole culture that goes with the music that I, I really didn't know anything about. I was just really into Public Enemy. And, uh, and so they were telling me about it, and, uh, and we were hanging out during the day, and they were like, oh, tell me about your music, right? It was cool. And then um, this circle starts to form up, right? And, uh, and I was like, okay. I'm standing in the midst of the circle. These hip-hop people are, like, forming a circle. And then somebody starts beatboxing, like, right? And I'm like, okay, right on. And then they start rapping, clearly just improvising, making up raps on the spot, what they call freestyling, okay? And, and so one person would rap, and they'd point to another person, and that person would rap. I was like, oh, this is fun. That's cool. I really like being here. And then somebody pointed to me. I was like, huh? <laughs> and they were like, go. I was like, go what? They're like, rap. I was like, I don't rap. And literally, a girl came up from the circle, two hands to my chest, boom, and the circle closed. And I was like, rude, but, but fair. Because here's the thing, I had unwittingly found myself in a cipher. That's what it is called. And in a cipher, if you don't beatbox, then you better be able to freestyle rhyme, or you don't have a spot in the circle. Okay? I could not freestyle rhyme. I did not have the thing required to be in the circle. Therefore, I needed to step out. And that's simply a fact of life. Right? Now, well, some of that, like, some places don't need to be exclusionary, but, like, I can't join a sorority because I can't do a keg stand. This is what I thought of yesterday. I was at the playground with my kids, and my kids, like two of my kids were like playing off somewhere else, and so I just looked like a dude standing there at a playground. I was like, this is not okay if you don't have kids with you, right? I, if I didn't have kids, I shouldn't be there. There are many places where something is required if you want to be part of it. If I have a GED, I can't apply to Yale and get in. As far as I know, I've never applied to Yale because I don't have what's required to go to Yale, right? What do we need? Is there something required to be in fellowship with God? To be part of God's family, to have God's hand on your life, right? All of the things that come from being in relationship with God, is there something required? The answer is yes. And that is righteousness. Now, righteousness is a Bible word we don't totally understand. But righteousness has a pretty deep meaning in the scriptures. It's far beyond just not doing the wrong thing. It means being whole as a person. That, that you not only do the right thing, but you do the right thing for the right reasons. Right? Like, you know, sometimes when I do the right thing, for instance, most of the time... Always, pretty much always, I do it for self-interest. I want people to see me doing the right thing and, you know, give me... Like, that doesn't count as righteousness. Righteousness means that you are totally obedient inside and out to the law and will of God. Seems like a problem, doesn't it? 
because there isn't a righteous person in this room. And I'll go further. There's not a righteous person on the planet. The best of us are not totally obedient to God inside and out in, in, in commission and omission and whatever other issues you want to put on there. None of us meet that standard. And so if you've been listening at home, I just said none of us have what is required to be in relationship with God. We ought to get two hands to the chest. Get out of here. You don't belong here. So what gives? Is heaven empty? Are all of us, like, shouldn't be here in church offering worship to God, like saying prayers to God, hearing God's word, receiving sacrament, all that? Well, by rights, yeah. Yeah, none of us actually belong. But before you get too discouraged, I want to remind you of the text we just read, and you should be encouraged. You know I have something, right? Like, this is going to go somewhere? Okay. Because you all were, when I was reading that genealogy, you were like, dude, I get it. That person was this person's father. So on and so on and so on. And some of you guys who read your Bibles, you come across a genealogy and you're like, fast forward, get to the good part. Well, that is kind of the point of a genealogy. You know what a genealogy is? It's a montage. You know, when you don't have a lot of time in a movie, you have four minutes to cover, you know, some, some long period of time, you need a montage, right? There's even uh, in uh, Team America World Police, there's a great song about this. You should all listen to it. <laughs> you need a montage. The, the Bible's version of a montage, montage, is a genealogy, right? When you go into hurry-up mode, you, you just say who someone's dad was, Okay? And so this is a genealogy that goes from Abraham, who's the father of the nation of Israel, all the way to David, the, the, the first king of Israel, and then to Jesus. Okay, it's covering, it's telling the story real quick of the entire history of Israel. But there's another function of a genealogy in this case. Did you see in verse 1, it says, The genealogy of Jesus Christ, or Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. A genealogy is someone's qualification for laying claim. In this case, it's the promise to Abraham that Abraham would be a blessing to all nations and also the throne of David the king. It's saying, this is Jesus' resume. He's qualified to be the inheritor of Abraham and David. Making sense? Okay. Another thing that genealogies do, and this is true not just in the Bible, but in the entire ancient world, is you're going to tell someone's biography, it, it burnishes their reputation. Okay? It's like, look at these illustrious people who are their, uh, their forebears, right? Or who are their descendants. It's, it's a way to increase the prestige of the, the person whose biography it is. Right? You're already liking genealogy better, I can tell. So this particular genealogy, it tells the story of the Old Testament kind of reversed. A genealogy usually would say the person then who descended from them, this is the opposite. This is the ancestors with Jesus as the focus of the entire Old Testament, okay? And it does verify the claim that he is eligible for the throne of David as well as, to, as, well as the promise to Abraham. But what about the third thing about burnishing his reputation? 
There's some very odd things about this genealogy that if we were ancient people, we'd go, hmm? First of all, there's four women in it. It's not usual. Usually, you would just say who the fathers were. And, and here's another thing. Let's take a look at some of these people who would be well-known to the first century Jews who were hearing this. In verse 3, it says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. I don't know if any of you have read the story of Judah and Tamar in the book of Genesis, but when you do, I suggest you wear rubber gloves and shower afterwards, okay? It is not savory behavior. They do not come off looking very good at all. Here's the other thing. Tamar was a Gentile, not part of the nation of Israel. She doesn't belong there. Judah does not enhance one's moral standing, right? Judah does not look good there. He doesn't belong there. Uh, what about verse 5? It says, Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Do you know what Rahab did for a living, folks? The second oldest profession. The oldest profession is shepherd. <laughs> okay? And... She was not part of the nation of Israel either. She was a Canaanite, another Gentile. Doesn't belong there. But she's there. Weird. I wonder if this pattern continues. Verse 6. Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Does she not have a name? She does have a name. It's Bathsheba. But Matthew is emphasizing the fact that this was not David's wife, that David committed adultery and, oh yeah, murdered her husband. Is that, that burnishing like the, <laughs> right? Like this is in your genealogy? And also Bathsheba was a Gentile. Doesn't belong. And David's a murderer. Doesn't belong. Verse 10, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. You guys know who Manasseh was? You guys get up in the book of Kings ever? You know, when you read the book of Kings, it's like, this king did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, or this king did what was evil. You know what it says about Manasseh? It says, Manasseh did what was evil in the sight of the Lord more so than anyone who ever had done it. He sacrificed his own son to Baal. He set up Baal altars in the temple of the Lord. He was so bad that after Manasseh, God says, okay, you guys, this is it. You're going into exile. Not right now, but you've crossed the point of no return. Matthew doesn't include everybody, right? At the end, it says this is 14 generations, 14 generations, because Jews liked that symmetry of 14, so he skips some people. These are intentionally included. It's not just like, well, it's there, so you have to put it in. If you were trying to burnish a reputation, these are not the people you would put in. There's Gentiles, there's prostitutes, there's immorality, there's murderers, there's, there's child-sacrificing pagan worshipers. These are not people who belong in the story, are they? Yet there they are. Some genealogy, isn't it? When we look at how the story of Jesus starts in 18... 23. Take a look with me now. 
says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Ah, here we are. We're going to the manger. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Guys, where did they live? First century Palestine. That was a very intense shame-honor culture. All right? So they were betrothed, which is something much more than being engaged. They were legally married. They couldn't, they had, they had to divorce if they were going to not be together anymore, right? But they hadn't yet been married, so they could not consummate the marriage. For Joseph, he just found out that his, his betrothed is with child. He hasn't been with her. What does that mean? It means that for Joseph and also for their little small town, she would have been an adulteress. Some very intense shame attached to that. Let's read on. 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, Joseph's hands were tired. It was actually, it was actually Roman and Jewish law that if, uh, if somebody cheated, you couldn't give them a second chance, Okay. Like, you had to get divorced if you're the man. Yeah, that, I didn't make it up. That is the law. Now, when it says he was unwilling to put her to shame, it means he could have taken her to court and done this publicly and really exonerated himself because uh, the one thing he didn't want to be thought of was as someone who has sex outside of wedlock, right? Nowadays, if people get pregnant and then married, we're like, Meh. then it was like, rest of your life, there is a stain on your reputation, okay? So Joseph decides to divorce her quietly. That is, he'll write her a divorce certificate with three witnesses, okay, as opposed to a public trial and all that stuff. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. It means he married her. Okay, so Joseph is, is saying, okay, we'll both bear what they were, they didn't sin in this case, but according to their community, right, they were stained. They bore shame. You see? But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. There's Silent Night for you. That's all it gets. Like half of a verse. <laughs> Matthew is much more concerned with the shameful circumstances around Christ's birth. Think about this, and I, I'm, I did a lot of research on this. I'm very careful here because I'm uncomfortable saying it. According to their community, Jesus' parents weren't married when they conceived him. That not only puts 
it puts shame on their reputation, but his. There's a rude word for someone whose parents aren't married, and it meant a lot back then. So it is interesting that though sinless in this case, that this family and Jesus bear shame, isn't it? It's almost like that's a pattern that repeats in the book, right? So not only does this genealogy include people who don't belong, Christ's own family would not have been considered those who belong among the righteous, correct? Did you notice also what the angel said to Joseph? He said, Don't, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, which means salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, the Messiah was supposed to come and eradicate sinners, supposed to, erat supposed to, to, to defeat the Gentiles, and then the righteous reign. But what does this say he comes to do? To save sinners. Which sinners? Well, how about all of these scum dirt bags that we just read about, right? Now, I realize this is less structured than I usually preach. We're just kind of looking at text and saying, huh, that's weird. They don't belong. Huh, they don't belong. That's weird. He's going to die for the people that don't belong. Why is it that Matthew starts his gospel this way? Do you know what Matthew did before he was an apostle and a Bible writer? Let's check it out. I think Matthew gives us a big clue here in Matthew 9. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the screen. Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Tax booth. Tax. What did he do? He was a tax collector. Have you, has everyone heard my rant on tax collectors in the ancient world yet? Okay, if you haven't heard it, here it is. It just, like, we think tax collector IRS. That's a perfectly respectable job. Quiet. <laughs> In the ancient world, taxes were not like, hey, let's all pay our fair share so we can have schools and roads. That's not what they were. Roman citizens did not pay taxes. Taxes were paid by the defeated, conquered, and oppressed to their oppressors. Okay? And it wasn't like, oh, well, how much do you make? Let's take a percentage of that, you would, they would say, give us this much money or else. That's what a tax collector did. They'd show up at your door with the goon squad and say, hey, give me such and such amount. You say, I'm a poor man. I don't have that. Well, great. I'm going to have my goons beat you in the town square. Do you have it now? Or, oh, you, you don't have money. Well, I see your daughter back there. I'll take her instead. And she becomes a slave. That's how your taxes are paid. It gets worse. Tax collectors were from the oppressed people. In this case, a Jew was a tax collector working for the oppressors to oppress his people and getting rich off of it. It's like if Martin Shkreli was a human trafficker. Okay, that is what a tax collector is. You guys all know who, Pharma Bro? Martin okay, great. It's like the most hated man in America. If, if he was even worse, that's what a tax collector was. You would call them scum, but that's an insult to scum, all right? There, there's a, it's like a special category. Look, when we look at verse 10, 
It says, Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came. They get a separate category. It's like sinners and then tax collectors, right? It's like sinners, tax collectors. But look, let's look back at verse 9. He's sitting at the tax booth, and Jesus says what to him? Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Matthew had no business hanging around with the Messiah. And look at, what it, look at what it says in verse 10. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, that is, in fellowship. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's not what a good rabbi does. That's not what the Messiah does. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He didn't come for those who belong. He came for those who don't belong. Jesus came to make those who don't belong his. Merry Christmas, folks. None of us belong. None of us have the required righteousness. We all should be stepping out except that the Savior says, follow me. You're mine. Jesus calls those who don't belong to be his. Does that make sense now? That this is Matthew's story, and that's how he begins his gospel with a bunch of people that don't belong, yet somehow are part of fellowship with God, somehow are part of the story of the Savior. If you've been sitting there saying, you don't have to tell me I'm not righteous, I'm well aware. I'm well aware that the life I live does not earn me enough brownie points with God. There's good news for you. God, God knows. <laughs> and says, yes, that's why I provided Jesus for you. You who don't belong are called to be his. You do not. You will never generate your own righteousness. Jesus gives you his. That's the whole uh, 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 that's the whole idea of the gospel. Your resume doesn't qualify you. Instead, you're accepted despite your resume. If you are aware that you don't live up to those righteous requirements, but you've got a plan, you've got a plan to like clean yourself up enough to where you prove yourself worthy to God, <laughs> guys, it's not going to work. Here's why. Once you succeed, which you won't, Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, right? Jesus came for those who don't belong only. When we look at the Gospels, the Pharisees and the people who consider themselves righteous, those aren't the people who turn to Jesus. Those aren't the people who receive eternal life. It's the people who say, you're right, I don't belong. I'm a tax collector. I'm a prostitute. I'm a, I'm a whatever. And those are the people who are in the kingdom with Christ. That theme comes up again and again. So if you've got a plan to make yourself righteous in us, enough, by all means, stop now. Instead, Jesus calls you who don't belong. Be his. If you currently believe you belong, right, you're like, well, you know, not totally perfect, but 
basically perfect. You know, a lot better than these other folk. You're, you're kind of like that person who, who like, is like, I don't have B.O., but you do. Right? Everybody else smells it except you. Right? That's the only way to convince yourself that you're righteous enough, that you meet the requirements to be in fellowship with God, is if you are totally blind to your own unrighteousness. And by all means, ask people around you, hey, do you think I'm righteous enough? Do you think I qualify? Do you think the life I've lived has earned God's favor, proved me worthy? And they will tell you the truth. But my family's been members of the same church for nine generations. I read everything Dobson ever wrote. I give my full time every week. Good. Fine. But you don't have the perfect righteousness of Christ, which is the requirement, and none of us have yet. It's provided for us. When we talk about the vision of grace and peace, what this church is all about us coming together as those who don't belong, yet somehow we're here. Somehow God hears us. Somehow, because of God's goodness, not our own, we are in fellowship with God, receive eternal life. Our, our, our prayers are heard, our worship received, the sacrament received, all of those things. It's not because we deserve it. It's in spite of the fact that we don't. We focus on the goodness of God and that's what Christmas is all about, is that Jesus did not come to call the righteous but sinners. He didn't come for those who belong, but for us who don't. I want to show you guys a picture, and I got permission. I'll set it up. Oh, it's up, it's up already. I'll contextualize this for you. That's my, that's my daughter Maggie, 13 years ago, when she was three years old. And we were still in St. Louis, and we went to the pumpkin patch, Okay. And this is like my favorite picture ever. I've kept it. Well, it's on my computer, but I've kept it. <laughs> and, you know, we were like, okay, honey, pick, pick your pumpkin. You want one that's like nice and round, good size, because they all cost the same. So get a good pumpkin, da-da-da. And she went right for this one. Do you guys, can you guys see it? There's nothing, there's nothing recommending this pumpkin. It's green. <laughs> it is not pumpkin color. It was misshapen. It doesn't like stand up. It's not big. It's not anything that you'd want in a pumpkin. But she loved that thing, right? Like there's a whole series of these pictures of her just holding this pumpkin. Like it's the dearest thing to her, okay? You see where I'm going? You're the pumpkin. I'm the pumpkin, guys, <laughs> right? We, we don't. We're not good pumpkins. Yet this is how we're embraced by Jesus. This is what it means to not belong, yet Jesus makes us his. Please pray with me. God, may we not rest in our goodness but yours. May each and every one of us this morning hear the good news that though we are not qualified, you qualify us. Though we don't belong, you call us to be yours. I pray that you would give us the spiritual eyes to understand the gospel and receive it this morning. In Jesus' name.